0: Welcome to this special edition of Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein, and this weekend, Atlanta celebrates the 90th birthday of one of its favorite adopted sons. You don't need us to tell you about all that Andrew Young has accomplished, but the civil rights leader, former mayor, and UN ambassador has a legacy that will be nearly impossible to top. One of the people who can best tell that story is Atlanta Journal-Constitution race and culture reporter Ernie Suggs, who is also the author of a new book called The Many Lives of Andrew Young part of his 90th birthday celebration and the release of the book, Ernie sat down with Ambassador Young for a lengthy conversation, which you will hear today. Thanks for joining the show.
2: Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. I liked it when you said uh, reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution and author. <laughs> that sounds kind of cool.
0: It's a really cool feeling, isn't it? And we'll get it to is. talk more about your book in a second. But you know, first, I want to ask you, what, what really stood out? You've talked to Andrew Young so many times over the years. You've covered him for decades now what really stood up doing this conversation with ambassador Young I think during this conversation we wanted to kind of talk about his legacy obviously as he
2: approaches his 90th birthday on Saturday March 12th. but we want to talk about his legacy but we also wanted to talk about what he has contributed to Atlanta in your intro you said he's one of Atlanta's favorite adopted sons and I think that's kind of interesting because a lot of Atlanta mayors a lot of a lot of people who are long associated with Atlanta are Atlanta born people. he was not he moved here in 1961. Uh, After he had had established a career and he moved here to work specifically for Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement. So when you look at someone who moved here and who has had such a significant impact on what this city is, we talked a lot about, you know, what the city was like when he first moved here versus what it is now. And a lot of what it is now is uh, attributed to what he did as the mayor, what he did, uh, his vision to bring international business here. His vision to expand the airport, his vision, which you could not have imagined in 1961, to host the Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia in 1996. So we talk about that. So we talk about his long lasting legacy here in the city.
0: Yeah, the city's growth really is tied so much to his his legacy, his imprint. Yeah. And I think few people will remember the fact that he is actually Atlanta transplant. He's not a seventh generation Atlanta or yeah, anything like yeah, that. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Even even some of his children were not born here. So I mean, he's he's definitely a transplant.
0: All right. So without further ado, here's Andrew Young on politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ambassador Young, thank you for having us
2: today in your wonderful, beautiful museum-like home. You're approaching ninety. How does that feel?
3: It feels good because. I'm doing pretty good. I mean I nothing's I'm not in pain. I don't take a whole lot of pills. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I take vitamin pills. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh, but as
2: uh, far as I know, I'm still in pretty sound mind. You told me earlier before we started filming that all the you know, there's a lot of parties and stuff that's going on for you, but all you wanted to do was just your well, only assignment was to make it to ninety.
3: That's what I said. I said however you all celebrate it is your business. Uh-huh. Uh, my job is just to get to 90. Uh Well, I don't know how to celebrate a birthday. Okay, And we're basically celebrating the birthday to help carry on the work of the foundation, Uh which uh, originally I thought when I left, the foundation would die. Oh, okay. But we have so many good projects in process Mm -hmm. that we can't let it die. Yes. And even if something happens to me, the things that we've got that are going to take another five, ten years, probably. And that's the, that's the kind of foundation I wanted. I wanted a foundation to help shape the future based on the 90 years uh, that I've uh, enjoyed uh, this city and this country and, and the world. I've been fortunate enough between the UN and Congress and my church work that uh, I've been to, in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I've been to, well, at least 152 countries. Yeah. And I say 152 countries because a lot of places that I've been in Africa and Europe and Russia, when I went to Russia, it was all Russia. Uh-huh. Uh, Georgia has separated, uh-huh. Soviet Georgia. I think Uzbekistan has separated. Uh, and if I count all those uh-huh. as separate countries, uh-huh. uh, Ukraine,
2: yeah, yeah, Crimea uh, yeah.
3: in spite of what's going on. In fact, I even wore my uh, blue and shirt <laughs> and yellow sweater because I think this is something this is one of the most important things going on in Earth. This is the battle for democracy in Europe, but as you know, we have a battle to protect and preserve democracy here in the United States.
2: How do, you, how do you, you know, coming from where you came from in terms of civil rights and working for the United Nations, how, tell us about your thoughts about the, the battle for democracy here in America. No, one of the
3: things you learn in, with Martin Luther King and, and that you learn in the Bible is that history is not a straight line of progress. Uh, it's ups and downs. It's setbacks and... Setups and and uh, freedom is a constant struggle. I always quote one of my recollections of Dr. King when we were both in our we were all in our early thirties, uh, and he was saying, um, kind of playfully but very serious. He said, "You know, we have got to be clinically insane." to think that this bunch of ragtag young Negroes Uh Uh (laughs) can redeem the soul of this nation. He said, we don't have any money, we don't have any weapons. We didn't even have the right to vote back then. And he said, we'll be lucky to make it to 40. 40, He said, but if we make it past 40, we're going to have to keep this struggle going to at least
2: 100. Dr. King famously died at 39. Malcolm X died at 39. Yeah. When he said that, did you think you would make it to 40? I, I, you know, I credit my
3: grandmother because my grandmother at 86, well, from 80 to 86, she was blind. Mm -hmm. And I used to have to read the Bible and the newspaper to her and, um, I'd have to listen to her commentary mm. every day, and she was anxious to die. She would complain to God that He had left her here too long, and he she'd talk about all of the things she went through as a child and uh, raised eleven children. Only only five of them were her, but mm. eleven she had that she helped raise, mm. and um, and but. It was her looking forward to death that never made me worry about it. I mean, when when it happens, it happens. And it's a blessing. Dr. King used to also say that death is the ultimate democracy. Mm. Everybody's going to die. (laughs) Uh And you don't have anything to say about what you die, I mean, where you die, how you die. Your only choice is what is it you're willing to devote your life to.
2: So your grandmother, she lived into her 80s. Your parents lived into their 80s, All right? Of,
3: everybody in my family died around, well, my father, 85, my grandmother,
2: and my mother, 86. And Walter is 80, 80-something? 80 87. 87. So what do you attribute, I, I guess it's hereditary, but you also, when you and I were talking in, during the book, you talked about you were an athlete growing up. You swam well, and you thought, I was thought, always
3: you know, too small. Uh-huh and so i always tried harder uh, but i also my father was a dentist and whenever they'd send him free samples of any kind of vitamin pills uh, i managed to take them okay okay uh and um i, I never smoked mm. largely because he never smoked nobody in my family smoked i'd never smoked still haven't smoked a cigarette or a joint. <laughs> 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 uh and um as I said, I didn't start drinking until I got to be a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was largely going to Europe where, they, where drinking was far more... Well, I remember going into a Russian Orthodox church mm-hmm. and you stand up in the worship service and when the archbishop who was speaking recognized us, he went behind the pulpit and sent somebody to bring us back there, and he opened a bottle of Russian vodka. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> and we had to sit there and sip vodka. Uh-huh. And uh, it, was, it was more in a religious context. In Europe, everybody drinks wine with dinner. And um, I did most of my early travels as part of a staff of the National Council of Churches. Well, I, actually, I went to Europe right out of college and worked in a refugee camp uh, helping children and, and refugees who very much like now were fleeing from behind the Iron Curtain.
2: Weren't you um, toting bricks or moving bricks well, or mud? Or we, to make we
3: had to build a refugee center uh-huh. and they didn't have any tractors. Yeah. And so we had to dig the foundation, which was about 20, 20 25 feet deep. Mm-hmm. We had to dig it by hand uh-huh. and then roll the mud up a ramp. Yeah. You do that six, seven miles a day. <laughs> uh, I think I just turned 20, and I was probably in the best shape I've oh, ever I, been yeah. in life. Yeah, I can imagine. I was getting a load of uh, mud, and then I'd have to make it up the the hill, Uh a ramp. In fact, one of the farmers decided he was gonna help us Uh and he brought uh, his mule down there. Uh (laughs) (laughs) The mule kept slipping and he said, no, 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 I can't afford to lose my mule. (laughs) So he took his mule back.
2: Uh When you talk about international stuff, before before we get to Atlanta, I want to ask you a question about being in the UN, being the first uh, black UN ambassador representing the United States, and with what's going on in the world now, we now have a black woman who has that same position, and it's not even blinked. We don't even blink about it because of. So when you look at her, when you look at her, what's what's going on in the country now? What do you think about in terms of what you did to kind of lay the groundwork for her?
3: Well, actually, I don't know that I did that much. I think that uh, there were always black staffers. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the UN was almost founded by Ralph Bunch. Ralph Bunch, yes. And Ralph, Ralph Bunch wrote most of the papers and mo- most of the guidelines for the the UN rules and regulations. And the UN is, well, half of the countries in the UN were African. And so um I was I was probably more at home <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, than most ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And so was my staff, because okay. my staff had come with me from Congress. And the UN is most of the relationships you make and most of the discussions you have, always in a social context. Mm -hmm. It's going to the receptions, uh, honoring when a prime minister comes and you go to to a reception honoring the prime minister. You really get more conversation done almost in the receiving line Mm -hmm. than you do when you sit down in the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's the informal parts. It's it's what happens in the delegates' lounge. Mm-hmm. I had personal relationships with almost every sector of the, of, the, of the world.
2: So, where does that come from? You know, there's always that talk, you know, you went to Howard University, the, the, the talk that you learn more out of the classroom than you do in the classroom. Yeah. So, in this sense, where did you get the idea or where did it come from that it's better to kind of deal with people outside? Of the Great Hall of the United Nations, and just have you know, you, t- you tell me the story about you know uh, the Chinese delegation coming to your house for Chinese food or for soul food. They came w-
3: yeah. when when the Chinese came to the to the UN. They we didn't know much about China. China had never been on the world scene before, and it was embarrassing that they started talking about Chinese food. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, my wife went off and sat by herself, and they the head of the delegation went over and sat next to her and said, where you find good Georgia food. <laughs> yeah. And she said, only at our house, when are you coming to dinner? Yeah. But that was where I broke down all of the barriers. I, I you know, worked with the Israeli ambassador and his family and, and went to his home uh, for most of the Jewish celebrations. See? Mm-hmm. Every country has a national day a something that they celebrate. Every religion does. And you find yourself wanting, being able to understand people better if you understand where their motivation comes from. I mean, you could talk with the Chinese and the Chinese remember, most of the Chinese when I was there, remember when there were signs on the parks Mm -hmm. and on some of the buildings Uh, No dogs are Chinese allowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Discrimination has existed all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that I had been discriminated against and was not a discriminator Mm
2: -hmm.
3: gave me an edge. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. Let's talk about Atlanta for a little little bit. So you moved here in 1961. Mm -hmm. And i talked to Andrea, uh, for those of you, uh, Andrea Young, who's your daughter, who's the executive director of the Georgia ACLU, who's doing Mm -hmm. very good work. She mentioned that, you know, sometimes when you all drive around town or you drive around town, you are proud of the fact of what Atlanta is and obviously proud of what you have contributed to what Atlanta is now. Well,
3: I think maybe. I have to confess that that's my sin. Okay. My sin is pride in this city. Okay. Because I was, well, I was up in the Chamber of Commerce building and uh, I was looking down. And I couldn't resist. I was talking to a young lady from Haiti and I said, you know, when I became mayor, that Hyatt blue blue, building Uh was the tallest thing in town. Uh And I can remember the groundbreaking Uh with Bill Marriott when he and John Portman uh, started to build the Marriott Marquis. And... uh, I can remember when uh, the Dutch uh, started building the Ritz-Carlton hotels and the Dutch put a billion and a half dollars into Atlanta during the time I was mayor. And and, um, we got started on a growth process Uh that surprised people and they were uncomfortable with it at first. Whenever I go down 400, or the Presidential Parkway, Mm -hmm. I'm reminded that I probably got cussed out, I figure, at least 75 times, 70, 75 times, by people who were my friends and who had voted for me, but who didn't want any more roads. Uh Well, the people who want to pull out a Buckhead, when I became mayor, there was almost no Buckhead. Lenox Square was a little row of shops, Mm -hmm. see, and um, no cover on it. Uh Oh, wow. uh, and um, we've watched it grow, and I think the thing was that I saw the proposals, mm-hmm. I saw the plans, I saw the vision that international investors had for Buckhead, mm-hmm. and if we had not connected Georgia four hundred with seventy-five, eighty-five. A lot of that couldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. The traffic would not have allowed it. Mm-hmm. And and we know how badly we're controlled by tra- traffic now. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of that traffic is because we were not able to build the outer perimeter. Mm-hmm. Whenever I get stuck on 285, <laughs> I realize that all these trucks are not supposed to be here. Uh-huh. They're supposed to be on an outer perimeter 60 miles would have taken that traffic coming from the north. It doesn't want to come to Atlanta anyway. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They want to get down to Savannah. They want to get down to, to Mobile or, Mo- uh-huh. or Birmingham. Uh-huh. But because we didn't build that outer perimeter, it has stifled the growth of the entire metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. When- and we had the money uh-huh. and we had the land set aside. Uh-huh. But that was a political decision. Uh-huh.
2: On a state level or federal level? On the state level. level. Uh Mm -hmm. So where did you, where did this vision come from? I talked to Shirley Franklin yesterday and she said, you know, your experiences in civil rights, your experience with the UN, uh, as a congressman, you were probably the most qualified person to ever come to city of Atlanta to be the mayor, the most qualified mayor to come in. So where did the vision come from to, to, to see all of this, that what we are now? Well, you know,
3: first Christmas, I was in uh, Congress, they sent me to Japan as a representative. Sam Nunn and I represented the U.S. Congress with the Japanese Diet. We saw how Japan was booming and how limited it was in space. Mm-hmm. And so when you got more money than you got space, <laughs> you got to find somewhere to move that money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Every governor understood that. Jimmy Carter understood that. And Jimmy Carter started thinking about uh, how to bring business in and even hired and opened an office in Germany. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I had been to Germany and I knew that Germany was outperforming the needs of Europe. It could no longer sell all it made to Europe. It had to have other markets. And I went to Germany and I just talked to German companies. And I said, look, you're too successful to stay in Europe. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to survive in the 21st century, you're going to have to be in the United States of America. The best place to be in the United States of America is Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. We've got wonderful climate. We've got wonderful education institutions. We've got the world's busiest airport that can get you anywhere almost to 80% of the US market within two hours. Mm -hmm. And in most of them, we can bring you back the same day. Mm -hmm. And so you can make your base in Atlanta, but you can do business all over over the US. Mm -hmm. So once we started uh, realizing that these places needed to export their talents and their resources, I'd also read a little book about by Jane Jacobs mm-hmm. when I, just before I became mayor, Cities and the Wealth of Nations. Mm-hmm. And it said that countries don't create wealth, cities do, mm-hmm. and that cities uh, have problems. And in trying to solve their problems, they create new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And other cities who have the same problems uh, start importing them. Mm -hmm. And so it's the growth and development and the struggles of the city Mm. that generates the wealth of nations. Yeah, that makes
2: a lot of sense. That makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense.
3: And once I realized that, and I frankly did not see any vision from Washington. Uh And I knew Washington. I'd been to Washington before. I came to uh, Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I was on the banking committee, yes.
1: mm-hmm.
3: and the Secretary of treasurer was George Schultz, who had been Secretary, who was Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasurer, and Secretary of Labor, probably one of the most accomplished public servants. And he came to me and said, "You know, you ask good questions, and I don't like to go to these international meetings with an all-white delegation. Would you mind coming along with me? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and so he became kind of a mentor. Okay. He was a Republican. Yeah. I'm a Democrat.
2: It was a different time. Uh, uh, <laughs> different world then. Well,
3: it was and uh, that was in Reagan's administration and in uh, Bush's administration and Nixon's administration. See? but. I always had Republican friends and Democratic friends, mm-hmm. and um, made most of them through the Congressional Prayer Breakfast,
2: uh-huh. okay.
3: because uh, I treated my time in Congress like Congress was my church, okay. <laughs> <laughs> see?
2: And that, that helped a great deal. Are you uh, troubled by talking about Congress, how kind of dysfunctional it seems now in terms of Republicans and Democrats? That that display at the uh, State of the Union the other day with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert you know, shouting out and.
3: Well, I wonder what I would do there now. We had a lot of folk that were eccentric mm-hmm. when I was there, not quite this bad, mm-hmm. but I made it a point of talking to them regularly, and the place I talked to them was behind the Congress. There was a place where everybody went to, if they got hungry because mm-hmm. they made good hot dogs. And uh-huh. You've you got a hot dog and a Coca-Cola and you sit back there. And the one thing that Congress used to have in common was humor. Mm. All of the congressmen would get all of the dirty jokes that they could when they went home. Uh-huh. And when they'd come back, they'd want to tell them. Uh-huh. <laughs> well... Some of them were pretty good jokesters and comedians. Uh Uh, And even though we didn't vote alike and we disagreed on almost everything else, we could have a good laugh and heat a hot dog and a bag of potato chips, Uh Uh (laughs) you know, and and, and enjoy each other.
0: We're going to pause this conversation right here. You're listening to Politically Georgia. from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We are back to this special edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein here with AJC reporter Ernie Suggs. And the reason for this very special edition is that Ernie has recently written a book out in a few days about Andrew Young and his legacy. Ernie, I know it's gotta be such a cool feeling to be a published author. I just saw on Twitter you holding up your hardcover copy of the book that's out, what, March 29th?
2: March 29th, yes. It's uh, out March 29th, The Many Lives of Andrew Young. And yes, I am very excited about it. It's my first book. Uh, you know the feeling of uh, having that first book in your hand. So I'm pretty excited. I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to their actual official
0: release. I'm interested in your own personal relationship with, with Ambassador Young. You've been at the paper for, for a long time. I can't remember mm-hmm. how long, but far longer than I've been at the paper. <laughs> and I'm just curious how you first got to meet him, how you first started covering him, and how that relationship evolved.
2: Well, I joined the paper in nineteen ninety-seven, the year after the Olympics. But I actually met Andy Young in nineteen ninety-six when I was working for a newspaper in Durham, North Carolina. He came to North Carolina to to, um, to promote his book, "An Easy Burden," and I met him then. Uh, I was actually covering the event, but I wrote uh, in, in in my piece about him that you know he's also my fraternity brother. So hmm. meeting, uh, being a member of a fraternity, meeting a legend like Andrew Young. At, the, at such a young age as I was at the time was an amazing experience. So I was able to meet him then. We didn't have really a relationship, of course. I was meeting him and, you know, all that stuff. But once I moved to Atlanta and I, I became entrenched in the paper's coverage of race and civil rights, he obviously became an amazing source and an amazing just kind of person to kind of run things by. You, all, you, you know, as a reporter, as great as you are, how important it is to establish relationships with people. And, you know, with him and Coretta Scott King and Hosea Williams and C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, Joe Lowry, all these people were alive at the time I moved here. So I was able to kind of get to know them. And I always called them kind of the second set of American founding fathers, because what the founding fathers and I put that in quotation marks, what they were doing in 1776 was putting together a pattern or a uh, putting together what America was supposed to look like. But it wasn't until these guys came along, two hundred years later, that it actually became closer to what the founding fathers were envisioning as what America was looking like. So I've always looked at Andy Young as this kind of figure that, through his work in the civil rights and through his work as the mayor of Atlanta, United Nations, and the, the first, you know, United States Congress, first black United States congressman from Georgia since Reconstruction, I've always seen him as this kind of transformational figure. And you know, as you can see from the interview that we're listening to now, he has a great list of stories. He has a million stories. He has a million ideas, and he's just always kind of at the center of everything. And he's just always been this great font of knowledge. And I've
0: always respected that. Ernie, I always thought there was a book in itself in his battle for Congress, uh, one of the one of the you know premier races at the time in the nation, and one that took all these twists and turns. Um, you know, I'm sure you got, you learned a lot about that that contest <laughs> doing your research yeah. for the book and for all the other coverage.
2: Yeah, I, you know the name of the book is "The Many Lives of Andrew Young," and I, I've said often that all of his lives can be a book. You know, his run for Congress is a book. His 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 career in the United Nations, which is was very controversial, could be a book. His career as the City of Atlanta's mayor could be a book. Is is his work as a civil rights leader is a book. So everything about this guy, if he had stopped at any one of these things, they, he would still have lived this great full life. So hopefully in the book, I may be able to kind of capture little snippets of all of these lives to kind of give the readers a kind of chance to kind of see who he
0: is in totality. Let's get back to the interview between Ernie Suggs and Andrew Young on the Politically Georgia podcast.
2: Talk about uh, why did you no Okay, so you were born in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. You lived in Alabama for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you move to it? You moved to Atlanta in 1961. Yeah, I think the answer is probably obvious. But tell us why you moved to Atlanta.
3: I moved here because Dr. King was trying to organize voter registration drives, but we had a pretty high level of of illiteracy. Oh, okay. And so we had a, we had a program to teach people to read and write in order to be able to register to vote. And we used things like a job application, the paper we got to get your driver's license. Mm-hmm. And we taught them to read and to write. Well, first of all, we took the position that everybody can read. Okay. They just don't know that they can read.
2: Oh, interesting.
3: See? Okay. And so we'd hold up, again, a Coca-Cola sign. (laughs) And everybody knows, what does this say? Uh Coca-Cola. You hold up a sign that says Atlanta. Uh, And we we had a lot of of public signs that everybody could read. Uh Then we broke those uh, words down phonetically Uh and taught them that whenever you see co, C-O, uh-huh. you know that's coal. co, co. Coca, uh-huh. Cola, uh-huh. uh cola see? And so, actually, um, Congressman Clyburn's Claiborne. uh-huh. parents yeah. were two of our first uh, yeah. trainers uh-huh. in South Carolina. In South Carolina, yeah. And I say that in 1960, before we started in Birmingham, uh, we had uh, trained over 600 leaders between Savannah, Georgia, uh, and Houston, Texas. Oh, okay. But by the time I got to be mayor, I realized that 16% of the city employees could not, thought they could not read and write. Oh, really? Yeah. So we immediately created computer classes uh-huh and we paid them uh overtime uh-huh. to go to computer classes twice a week just to wipe out illiteracy
2: really so that's 1980 it, and that those numbers were still that high still that high really yeah wow wow what do you think it was by the time you got out of the office you think it was pretty much 100% or
3: no i don't think it was 100% because we and that's that's one of the blessings and difficulties of Atlanta mm-hmm. that you never finished. Okay. See, the same people that were working in the water department, in every department of the city, when Atlanta started doing well, they started getting job offers mm-hmm. from other city, other counties yeah. or from other states mm-hmm. or from other cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Atlanta had to realize that because of our university base, mm-hmm. We have at least a half a million college students here now in the state of Georgia. Oh, in the state of Georgia. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, they come from all over mm-hmm. and they're going back all over. Mm. So Atlanta is a training ground, I think, for the world.
2: Mm. Oh, of course, yeah.
3: See. Georgia State now has fifty three thousand students. Yeah. And we celebrated the twenty fifth anniversary of the Andrew Young School of Policy uh-huh. uh, yesterday.
2: Yeah, I think there are seven things in Atlanta named for you. I think. I
3: well, I don't know, but <laughs> that's one of them. But the thing that makes me most proud was we've given out fifty thousand mostly graduate degrees. Oh, for mom, really? And that means we're sending we're sending people all over the world mm-hmm. uh, from Atlanta. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
2: What do you think? Your uh, since your your years in Atlanta from nineteen sixty one. What has been your greatest achievement? I don't know.
3: I, I'd rather think that I am a part of an intellectual explosion. Okay. See, I mean, it wasn't me, it was, it was John Portman, it was Charlie Loudermilk, it was Jesse Hill, mm-hmm. it was Herman Russell. Mm-hmm. See, As the new technology comes in, there's a whole new list of names. And as we brought sports in, you know, Hank Aaron became my friend. And I just think that that we found out the key to growth and prosperity was being able to live and work together and be and honestly communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. See. We don't have to agree. We just have to express ourselves and listen mm-hmm. to try to understand what, the opposition has to say. Mm-hmm. And we can usually work out a common ground.
2: But did you think when you moved here in 1961 that, you know, the city that you moved to then, that would 25, 30 years later, would host the Olympics, would have the busiest airport in the world, no, would have nobody a host did. A Fortune 500 companies? Nobody did. Okay. And, and, and you yet, did it, and you, it was you. No.
3: I mean, the first time I came through Atlanta, I remember... The Klan marched down Auburn Avenue. Oh, I was here for a high wire conference at the Butler Street wire. That must have been about 1946. Uh-huh. And um, but when I came back through Atlanta, I remember driving in. There were no expressways. I drove down Ponce de Leon, uh, and a rat crossed the highway. Yeah. and and I slowed down. Uh-huh. I figured rats had more rights than black folk in Georgia.
2: <laughs> this was 1961. No,
3: this was nineteen fifty-one. Okay, uh-huh. When I finished college. Mm -hmm. But um, when I came here in sixty-one, I came specifically because we saw John Lewis on television. Yeah. 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 And my wife said, "We got to go home." Uh I said, "We are home Uh, in New York." In New York, Uh I said, "We just built this. I mean, we just bought this house," Uh and. I said, this is a good job. I can go, I, I can stay here for life. She said, yeah, you stay by yourself. I'm going home. Uh-huh. I said, where's home? Anywhere down south. Uh-huh. And I said, well, what about Atlanta? She said, you go to Atlanta. I'm going back to my mama's house in Marion, in Alabama because she just had our third child. Uh-huh. And she just gotten a master's degree. And she wanted to come back to the South, to be a part of the growth and development that, you know, that was here. Mm-hmm. And and we have been here. She died of cancer after we'd been married 40 years. And Carolyn and I have been married now 26 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, both school teachers, are both very active church women, and both, uh, Happen to be willing to put up with me. <laughs>
2: How, what is it like to put up with you after 90
3: years? Well, I've always been difficult. Really? Yeah, because I grew up in a difficult family, a wonderful family, mm-hmm. but they encouraged the freedom of thought. Okay. And I never got punished for talking back to my parents that I had a right to an opinion. They might overrule it, uh, but they never shut me up. They might make me apologize if I was a little too smart-ass uh-huh. uh, for some other adult that wasn't used to that. Uh-huh. But they were they were—they were involved in everything, the y, YMCA and the YWCA, the Urban League, the NAACP, every cultural organization. So they they encouraged Walter and me to think for ourselves. They
2: let you make mistakes? Well, they
3: couldn't stop us. Okay. Because we didn't make many, though. Okay.
2: Well, I asked that question because I asked Shirley Franklin. I was talking to her yesterday about you. And she mentioned that when she was your chief of staff, she, when you know, she was the chief operating officer of the city, that you would let them make mistakes. Yeah. You would let them, you know, she may come with you with a proposal, and you say, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do that, but I trust you. And see how it goes. Yeah, Try it. Try well, it. Yeah.
3: And and, and and because that's the way you learn. Okay. You don't learn by having preconceived notions. You learn by seeing what works. Mm-hmm. See? That was the wonderful thing about having, I guess we had about 6,000 staff people in the city when I was mayor. But they were all from thoughtful, independent thinking backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They were racially and culturally and nationally diverse. And again, there was nothing, I I would say, I will not tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you've been in this job. I didn't fire anybody when I became mayor. Oh, okay. I said, look, I'm not going to be like Mm Maynard. Maynard might want to tell you what to do. I don't know what you ought to do. Mm I'm counting on you to know your job Mm -hmm. better than I do. Now, if you don't and need help, I'll be glad to help you. Mm -hmm. But if you do something, trying to solve a problem and make a mistake, I'll stand behind you. But if you're sitting around not doing anything, I'm gonna get you out of here.
2: (coughs) Well, we have a new mayor, uh, Andre Dickens, uh, we've had a string of black mayors since 19, election of mayor in 1973. Um, what does that mean for the city? And where do you see Atlanta well, going? Well,
3: here's the thing. We have had a string of good mayors. Okay, okay. And we were all different. Mm-hmm. We just happened to be... The one thing we had in common was, and it was probably the only thing we had in common. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shirley and I were good friends mm-hmm. and still are. Mm-hmm. But we're different people. Yeah. Bill Campbell and I, I mean, Bill was one of the smartest mayors we had. Bill graduated from Vanderbilt with honors and Duke Law School. Yeah. See. I mean, I met Kasim uh, when he was in college. And I mean, he stood out at Howard University. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I told him then that you need to hurry up, finish law school, Come back to Atlanta, run for something, mm-hmm. we're gonna need a mayor like you in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he was a good mayor. Mm-hmm. And yet, the very thing that made him a good mayor made him hard to get along with. Mm-hmm. Well, he and the business community got along very well. Uh, we probably made more strides in expanding the airport under his leadership. Mm-hmm him working with Richard Anderson at Delta, mm-hmm. uh, they planned out, I mean, the airport's now double the size it was when I was there. Mm-hmm. See? And, um, I mean, Maynard and I took it to one level, every other mayor has added runways, has added concourses, mm-hmm. uh, has added, you know, routes, and now it's the biggest and best airport in the world. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't cost the Taxpayer one penny. Yeah, there's not a penny of taxpayer money in yeah. the airport. Yeah, yeah. See? And it generated—they told me I think sixty-six billion dollars last year. Wow. And that was a bad year. Yeah, yeah, because of the pandemic. See? Yeah. But the Olympics generated two and a half billion dollars.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. Okay.
3: And we didn't have any debt. We had a hundred million dollars left over mm-hmm. after it came, uh-huh. and. Georgia Tech got its, all its dormitories, and Georgia State got a stadium, and yeah. Clark and, and Morehouse got nice renovations, and, and um, it, it, it was a positive, it was a, a great asset mm-hmm. to the internationalization of the city. Yeah, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So, um, what is Atlanta known for? What, is, what do people come here for? What do, what do you want people to know about Atlanta. Culturally, let's talk about the culture.
3: Well, the cultural anchor for Atlanta for the last 200 years has been education. Okay. I mean, you come to Atlanta and you've got five black, historically black colleges. You've got Georgia Tech, one of the top engineering schools in the world. Georgia State had 200 different nationalities in their student body. You know, a, a few years ago, I don't know how much what they have now, and that Scad, mm-hmm. we've got a great symphony, we've got playwrights, and uh, and now the movies. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I heard the first couple of years, Tyler Perry Studio did 9.2 billion dollars worth of, stu- of films. Yeah. Right now, we're known for being a bunch of really smart hard working people that get the job done okay and that's why factories are moving here because you can come out of atlanta technical college and you can go in with a prison record you can go in pregnant or divorced or just out of a mental institution whatever your condition they will take you and 98% of their graduates come out with a job.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's in 15 months. Uh-huh. We have a vision of being a progressive city. And we only get in trouble when somebody wants to turn us around and take us back the wrong way. Okay. But I was so proud of the leadership of the state of Georgia when um, in the last election they said no. Georgia's election was honest. Oh, sure. Yeah. See? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't change it. Mm-hmm. But the o- o- only thing I, I get upset about is people who came here because they thought life was easy. Okay. And when they realize, no, the reason is easy is we get together and solve problems.
2: The Atlanta way. That's right. Okay.
3: And we don't get together as black folk and white folk. We get together as Atlanta citizens, And we have institutions like the West Side Future Fund. Progress Atlanta Pro- Atlanta Progress. Yeah. Uh, but we, we, there are all kinds of institutions. Uh, and for the most part, our governors have been very progressive. And even we could not have done Marta if Lester Maddox hadn't stepped up mm-hmm. and supported it. Oh, see? Okay. Uh-huh. There wouldn't be a, a, a medical school to, at Morehouse uh-huh. if it hadn't been for Herman Talmadge, who uh-huh. everybody thought of as the worst racist uh-huh. in the world. But he understood that the health of Georgia mm-hmm. depended on all people. And he helped us put that medical school up out oh, there. Interesting. And uh, with the Olympics, Zell Miller was probably our most conservative government governor in some ways, but Zell Miller is the one that gave us the Hope Scholarship, yeah. and that made us the most progressive city, state in the South. Yeah,
2: yeah. So yeah. how proud are you of your work in the civil rights arena? And what do you think about, does civil rights exist now in terms of, of movement? Is there a movement now with Black Lives Matter? And I know you've been, you were, were critical of some of the methods of that uh, in the past. No, I was, I was
3: not critical. I was critical of our methods. Okay. Oh, okay. I, see, I think that you, I mean, I grew up with a mat, motto. My daddy started slapping it into me mm-hmm. when I was four years old. Don't get mad, get smart. Uh-huh. When you get angry in a fight, the blood rushes from your head to your fists to your feet, and you're liable to do something stupid. Mm-hmm. Use your head. That's the most powerful Vehicle you have for solving problems—that's uh-huh. what God gave you a head for. Use it. Yeah. See, uh-huh. and if you get mad, it shuts down your brain. Mm-hmm. See, I think that Atlanta has a, is a city that pretty much, in the slogan "A city too busy to hate," it said the same thing: Don't get mad, get smart. And um, I'm proud of how far we've come, mm-hmm. and how much of a contribution. I don't think there is a city in the world that has blossomed
2: like we have. Okay. So let me ask you one more question before we get to the book. And I don't know if you remember this, but in 1977, there was an episode of Good Times. And they were talking about um, the little girl, Penny, was being abused. You know, they saw all these bruises on her. And she said she had fallen down the stairs. So no one believed her. But Thelma, the beautiful daughter, said, well, maybe she's telling the truth. Maybe she did fall down the stairs. And J.J. said, yeah, that's as likely as Andy Young being afraid to open his mouth. Meaning <laughs> that, <laughs> that you you know, acknowledging that you weren't afraid to talk, that you weren't afraid to express your opinion. I don't know if you remember that episode or not. I didn't <laughs> remember that episode. But. Talk a little bit about that, about Andy Young being, you know, always, you know, being bold enough to say what's on his mind.
3: I think that ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Uh Now, occasionally the truth will make you mad. Uh But it's better to get mad and be free than to be a slave. Okay, Slavery is not a color thing. Mm-hmm. It's not an economic thing. It's a mental thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I have seen a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of status in the world who just don't think quickly enough. They're usually what I call trust fund babies. Okay. They're usually people who feel like they inherited the right to live, or to serve, or to be important, mm-hmm. and you can inherit that right, but only if you think your way through to get there. Mm-hmm. If you don't run the risks, you don't deserve the reward.
2: Okay. Okay.
3: And it is a risk to come out with a new idea, uh-huh. and um, I think that was one of the first first uh, things that happened uh, I went to meet with a group of business leaders and and uh, with Charlie Loudermilk mm-hmm. and in the middle of my presentation on why Atlanta had to be an international city, I saw one of them lean over and talk to Charlie and they both had a good laugh uh-huh. see? and um, I said Charlie, when it got through, I said look I'm not going to get upset but I need to know what so-and-so said to you Mm -hmm. and I said I need to know where I am where I start and he said Charlie where in the hell did you get that crazy nut from Uh and what I was saying was I was making the point why Atlanta needed to be an international city Mm -hmm. and he thought that was crazy Uh see and I said to Charlie well Thank you for telling me, but I know he might have used an N-word, but it wasn't (laughs) NUT. But in one of my first international trips, I made sure that we got him in the group Uh first. Uh Because, see, by the time I got to be mayor, I think I'd been to Japan five or six times. But he'd been to Europe and he was well educated, but he'd never been to Asia. Uh-huh. And when he went, I took him with me to Asia and, and Coca-Cola set up the meetings. Mm. See? Mm. And I think in the course of three days, we met with over 100 companies mm. and we got five or six of them to agree to move to Georgia. Uh-huh. But it was beyond his experience to think of Atlanta as an international city. Mm -hmm. Whereas by the time, by that time, well, actually by that time I'd been to over a hundred countries and I was at a hundred countries where I was meeting with the presidents. I was meeting with the business leaders. I was meeting with the revolutionaries. I was meeting with everybody. But let me tell you, thank you for this. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I've, um, I'm, I'm surprised at all that's happened in my life. Uh, and this is says the many lives of Andrew Young. And uh, <laughs> Ernie Suggs here helped put it together for me. And you did a good job.
2: Oh, thank you very
3: uh, much. And Don Bermudis...
2: The designer, Don uh,
3: ...was the one who collected all of this. And... Uh, it makes me feel, yeah. You we know, we are amongst the most blessed people on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And I thank God for the opportunities that he's let me in on in these 90 years. And I'll keep on keeping on until, you know, what, what the, Bill Withers used to say, "Just keep on using me till you yeah. use me up." Yeah. And because I've, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed everything I do. I mean, when somebody asks me the most, what is the thing that I'm most proud of? It's getting beat up in Saint Augustine. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> this yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that. You're uh, most proud of this. That's the most important thing I think I've done. Because Martin Luther King sent me down there to stop the movement. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stop the movement, so I had to lead it instead. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want the people to get beat up, so I left them. He didn't want violence. Mm-hmm. And I went over to try to talk to the Klan. And um, it was doing pretty good uh-huh. till somebody came up behind me and, and hit me with something. But then after getting stomped and kicked, for I don't know how long, mm-hmm. uh, I got up, and we couldn't turn back. We went to the next corner, and almost the same thing happened. Uh-huh. Only this time there was a, a big policeman uh-huh. who was about 6'6", and he came up into the Klan and said, you all leave these folk alone. Let them march through here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're gonna kill somebody if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize was the sheriff had deputized the Klan. Oh, sure, yeah, To beat yeah, us up. Yeah, yeah. But the city policeman, you know, was more thoughtful uh-huh. uh, and probably saved my life mm-hmm. and the lives of a lot of other people. But if that incident had turned to violence we wouldn't have had the civil rights bill Mm -hmm. because a week later that same Klan group Mm -hmm. marched down through the black community and the black community was there. I didn't know how they were going to respond, boo them or throw things at them. But instead they reacted. They started singing, I love everybody. Mm -hmm. I love everybody in my heart. Mm -hmm. I feel the love of Jesus. I feel the love of Jesus in my heart. Mm -hmm. That's why you can't make me doubt him. Mm -hmm. Because I know too much about him. Uh The contrast between the beating and the reconciliation and forgiveness of the people who got beat. Mm -hmm. That was my night to get beat, but everybody got that that was a movement where we had more hospital bills and we had bond bills, but after that singing on Saturday afternoon, the Congress on Monday voted to pass the 64 Civil Rights Act. So, uh, well, for me, that's my most significant accomplishment Mm -hmm. because I alone had to make a decision And it turned out all right. (laughs) All the rest of the times I was in there, and if I got pushed around and beat up, Uh uh, it was because I was following Martin Luther King or John Lewis or or somebody else. But Jose put me in that night. (laughs) Uh
2: So the name of the book is The Many Lives of Andrew Young. Uh, And this is uh, the final question. What does that title mean to you, The Many Lives of Andrew Young?
3: It means that I have been blessed for 90 years. It means I was born blessed, probably more than 90 years, because my daddy was blessed, my mother was blessed. We've been blessed at every step of the way with good education. I see my family as representative of an American struggle which started in slavery, Mm -hmm. uh, but which we have continued. And as far as my side of it, it's always been a nonviolent struggle. And we've always managed to do better than we thought we could. Mm -hmm. I don't know what success is, but I never thought that I would have the wonderful life I've had for 90 years. Mm. And my grandmama always said, you're blessed, son, but those ain't your blessings. Mm. you got to pass them on to all of God's children. Uh-huh. And you done
0: that? I've tried. Ernie, that was a powerful interview. Before we let you go, I'm just curious, with Andrew Young at 90, where do you see his role? Do you, do you see him as a, a bridge between those second set of founding fathers like you said in today's civil rights leaders
2: I do because I think he's one of the only obviously he's one of the only ones left he could he could definitely serve as a kind of a sage counsel to the to the to the activists that we're seeing that the activists that you're writing about so eloquently now he can definitely serve as that bridge because you know he he survived the 60s he survived the 70s um, and, and you know now what we're seeing now is kind of a different set of activism a different set of activists. Who are doing things differently than the way they did in the 1960s and 70s? So I think that with his leadership, with his guidance, with his counsel, which is what he's always done, he can definitely serve that role.
0: Well, Ernie, we have a lot more on ajc.com on the Atlanta Journal-Constitution print edition, and of course in your book. Tell, tell folks where they can find all of your uh, all of your work.
2: Well, uh, work you know I work for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, so you can find everything there on ajc.com. My Twitter is at Ernie Suggs. Uh, we've written a several stories this weekend about Andy Young. Um, I wrote a profile on him that ran on uh, March 12th, his birthday. And I have an essay that's, on, that's coming out on Sunday. And a, uh, an excerpt from the book is coming out on Sunday as well, in the Sunday paper, so the readers can see that. And you can find the book on uh, Amazon and at New South Books. So uh, hopefully um, all of you all will go out and buy a copy.
0: Amen. I know I will. That is all for this special edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Stay tuned on Wednesday for our next episode.
2: I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: And I'm Ned Dravone, mm-hmm. lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many
1: years, but that means something different to everybody.
2: It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving arts scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.